what happens when a person who is hungry for God opens up his word and studies it. That's what we're going to be looking at today. The Bible says that God's word does not return void. He always uses it to accomplish exactly the purposes that he has for it. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that God's word is living and active. God's word is not meant to be dead theology. Rather, it's meant to change our lives. And today we will be studying Nehemiah chapter 7. And we will see that the group of Israelites as a nation came to God's word and opened it and studied it. They sought to understand it. And as they did so, his word and his spirit were active in their hearts and in their lives. And the result of them studying God's word resulted in changed actions and changed behavior on their part. We won't go away the same. And I believe that for us too, as we study Nehemiah chapter 9 today, that we will not go away the same if we truly come to his word with a hungry heart. So today we will be looking at Nehemiah chapter 7. We will break it into two parts. The first part is the narrative part about what happened. Verses 1 through 5 describes the situation. And then the last part of the chapter is basically their prayer to God recorded for us to benefit from today. So I'll go ahead and read Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 5. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So this passage is really exciting because we see that when people study God's word, it makes a big change in their lives. Now, back in chapter 8, we saw that after the walls had been finished building around Jerusalem, the people had a grand assembly. And basically, it was a, a grand assembly of celebration. And the people were so happy to see how God had blessed them, how God had been with the remnant of Israel, how God had restored them to the land, how God had given them favor in the eyes of the king of Persia, and how God helped them to persevere in the face of all kinds of opposition which they faced and complete the walls in an, in an amazingly quick 52 days. Now, chapter 9, it says, takes place on the 24th day of this month. This is 23 days after the events of chapter 8, when they had another grand assembly, they read from the word of God, they were also convicted of their sin, and they celebrated. Now, when they read the law the previous time, God's word convicted them. And that's fairly normal. It's good for people to react to God's word like that. But a lot of times after people are convicted by God's word, they walk away and they simply go back to their everyday lives and they may forget about what they learned. 
Maybe they feel very sorry for their sins in the moment, but they allow the busyness of life to take over again. Like Jesus shared about the parable of the seed where the seed fell in the soil that was filled with thorns and weeds and the thorns and the weeds choked it out. So here we see that they were still grieving about their sin three weeks later and they gathered together again to study God's work. So they took it very, very seriously. This shows us the depth of their conviction. And we see here that when they gathered, the first gathering was a celebration, but they didn't forget their sins. And so this time we see fasting and sackcloth. These are signs of grief. And in that time and in that era, people would wear sackcloth, which was a very coarse and uncomfortable fabric to basically it was a form of of fasting in in their clothing. That is, they were denying the comfort of normal clothes and they were wearing something which was not attractive and which was not comfortable because they were focusing on their sin and the effects that their sin had on them. So this was a visible and a tangible sign of the grief that they felt about their sin. And uh, it, it even says that they put earth on their heads. These uncomfortable and inconvenient practices were associated with grieving. And so the physical discomfort would be a constant reminder of the person's spiritual state. So they did this with the clothes. They did this with the dirt. And then also the fasting. All of these were a form of self-discipline to set themselves aside from the world for a period of time to stop enjoying the pleasures that they normally enjoyed and then to contemplate their spiritual state. Now, we don't necessarily have to use sackcloth or, you know, dust on our head today, but do we ever do what they did and just take a time to really contemplate about our spiritual condition? In fact, the world these days, people do not want to contemplate about their spiritual condition. It's like a person who's laying in bed in the dark and someone comes in and turns on the light and they say, turn it off, you know, go away because Thinking about your spiritual condition is very convicting. You may feel ashamed. You may feel guilty. You may feel sorrowful. And a lot of people, they want to avoid those feelings. And even in many churches, the pastor's stated goal is to let people feel comfortable or to talk about positive things because they have enough difficulty in their life already without reminding them of their sin. And so the world is always trying to cover over sin, to cover over the proper repentance or sorrow for sin, and instead just fill life with pleasure, eating, indulgence, and all kinds of things that we like to cover over that feeling. But as believers, we don't want to cover over that feeling because it's that feeling of conviction, that feeling of guilt, which is the Holy Spirit working in us to tell us we need to change something in our life. And specifically, we need to turn away from that sin and we need to turn to Christ. So do you ever have a time period like that where you separate yourself a bit from the world? Perhaps you fast or maybe you just turn off the internet and the movies for a day or two, have a bit of a personal uh, retreat time and just spend time face to face with the Lord asking him to reveal your sin to you, and then whatever he brings to mind, you bring it to him in repentance. We see that real 
Repentance is often showed by sacrifice. Fasting requires giving up something that our body and our mind wants. And so when we sacrifice, we are giving up momentary comfort and or pleasure for the sake of focusing on God. This requires self-discipline. So what do we sacrifice for God? Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a, what? As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So a living sacrifice, it, does, it means you don't necessarily have to die for Christ, although if that is necessary, we should be willing to do so. But it means we sacrifice ourselves when we live for him, when we deny ourselves, when we deny our own desires in the small things in everyday life. And when we deny ourselves and put God first or put others first, that is actually worshiping God. So we often think of worshiping God as singing praise songs in church. And that is a form of worshiping God. But here it says that giving ourselves as a sacrifice is a kind of worship that God is looking for. Uh, for example, myself, I love eating popcorn. Uh, I will heat it up and add some butter and salt and maybe some Parmesan cheese or another seasoning. And I prepare this whole big nice bowl of popcorn, okay? And I'm ready to, to dig in and enjoy. And then maybe suddenly all four of my kids run up. Hey, Dad, what do you have in the bowl? Hmm, well, I have popcorn. Uh, can we have some? All right, now is the opportunity for me to sacrifice. Probably when I share with all four of them, there's not that much remaining. But if I do that with a cheerful spirit, with a loving heart, then that is even a way to worship God. Isn't that amazing? Sacrificing popcorn, as small and as insignificant as that is, is a way of worshiping God. When we give up something that we want, that is worship for God. And so they were fasting. And their fasting was a form of worshiping God. Now, what about you? What is something in your daily life that is maybe difficult for you to sacrifice or to give up for God? A pleasure, a desire, a comfort, something you enjoy? What is it? Is God calling you to sacrifice that in order to worship him, to put others first, and then also to come face to face with God and consider your sin and the importance of repenting of that sin. So their repentance was shown through their attitudes and then also in verse 2 through their actions. What did they do? It says they separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now, what does this mean that they separated themselves from all foreigners? If we look at Ezra 9 and 10, we can see a comparison. In that chapter, the people had disobeyed God by intermarrying with the foreign pagan nations around them. And this was forbidden in the Old Testament for them to marry people from these other nations because God says, if you go out after these other nations and get married to them, they will ensnare you. They will turn your heart to idolatry, which is exactly what happened in the case of Solomon specifically, and then also the nation at large many times in their history. 
They went after the foreigners, they got married to them, and then these foreign pagan nations who did not worship Yahweh turned their hearts away from God. This is actually what got them into the problem to begin with, which is why they had to go uh, to be exiled to Babylon, why, why they had to be disciplined by the Lord. So Ezra, when he sees that in Ezra 9 and 10, is very, very upset. And he rips out his hair, and he rips his clothes, and he falls to the ground, and we see a very, very extreme reaction. And so the final solution of Ezra and the people was to send these foreigners away, to separate from them. Now, it's likely that in here, in Nehemiah 9-2, the same idea is seen, that the people had intermarried or gotten together to form unholy unions with unbelievers. And so they had disobeyed God's word by having relationships with foreigners who are idolaters, and that was the problem. It wasn't about race, it was about faith and the fact that these were idolaters. And then here they were supposed to separate themselves from all foreigners. Now, if you want a detailed look at that to see why that was necessary in this case, uh, we have a video on Ezra 9 and on Ezra 10. I would encourage you to watch those and to check out those lessons. Uh, we really, the, the, that, those are questions that cannot be answered in a very short way here, uh, but I would encourage you to check out those and to see the whole uh, description from the Bible of why this was necessary. We will just look at it a little bit more uh, in in a moment. But first, what application can we get from this? Well, the simple application for us today is we must separate from ungodly influences and relationships. Second Corinthians six fourteen through seventeen talks about this. It says, "Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers." For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord." Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. So this says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. In other words, we have to separate from ungodly influences. The companion of the wise will be wise, but the companion of the fools will suffer harms. If there's a person who is influencing us to do sinful things, then we need to get away from that person. If there are certain books or certain apps or websites or technology that's influencing us to do sinful things, then we need to separate from it. Certainly, getting married to an unbeliever influences people to do ungodly things. There, the book of Amos 3.3 says, How can two walk together unless they are agreed? They're unequally yoked. They're walking in two different directions. The unbeliever is not that interested in going to church or giving uh, money to the Lord or raising their children to know God or following biblical principles of communication or forgiveness and a hundred other problems which will arise from pursuing a relationship with someone who is not a believer. 
So here they realize separating is necessary because these people are going in a different direction. They're not following Yahweh. If we go with them, if we have relationship with them, then they will pull us away from Yahweh as well. So it was necessary to separate. Separating can be painful, but it's necessary for our spiritual growth. Now, I will make just one note here about uh, this idea of if they were already married. Now, the New Testament makes it clear that God hates, well, Malachi says God hates divorce. And then the New Testament tells us that what God has joined together, let no man separate. Like God is not a fan of divorce. And so Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're already married, you're a believer, and the spouse is not, then stick it out. Then commit to staying together and pray that your spouse will become a believer. Uh, so this was a very unique situation at a very unique and special time in Israel's history. And there was a big, big dilemma for them. The entire nation was at risk at risk of displeasing God and even going extinct if they intermingled because there was a small remnant left. And so really there were two bad choices. They had put themselves into a dilemma. And a lot of times sin does that. Sin brings us into a dilemma when there's only two bad choices. Now for further uh, information about marriage and what is God's view about marriage, again, you can check out the video in uh, that we have on Ezra chapter 10. And we will go through very carefully a lot of biblical passages on marriage and the view that we should have toward marriage. Now let's move forward. In verse 3, it says, They stood up in their place. They read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So a quarter of the day. That's a long sermon. And a lot of people, they don't want to listen to a sermon or a preaching that is that long. But here we see that they respected God's word. God's word was the focal point when they got together. They wanted to listen to it. They were hungry for it. They wanted to learn from it. They wanted to study it. They wanted to do it. And so we're reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 6. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And actually, we look at the other qualities Jesus mentioned here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So they're, they're the ones who recognize their sin, right? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Okay, they mourn for their sin. They shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They were humble to admit the sin that they had done. They shall inherit the earth. And here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we did. We, we see that they did. They hungered. They thirsted for God's word. They wanted to know the truth. And they wanted to do it. And it wasn't enough for them just to read it once, three weeks before. They wanted more of it. So physical hunger drives us to get food day after day and spiritual hunger should drive us to God's word day after day. Now some people feel that's inconvenient. It's time consuming. It's a burden to read the word or listen to the sermons. But when you love God's word like they did, you will not feel it's inconvenient. Think about eating food. If you like a certain food, then you will enjoy eating it and you will want more of it. And when you don't have it, you may even crave it. If you don't like eating a certain food, then it will be a burden and a chore for you to eat it. 
and you will not want to eat it. So it's really not normally a question of, am I too busy for God's word? Do I have enough time for God's word? It's only about my attitude. Do I like it or not? If I like it, then I'll hunger for it and I'll make the time for it. So we should crave for God's word and be excited to have the chance to study it deeper. We'll want to share it with others. We'll want to stay in church longer. We'll want the sermons to be longer, not for them to be shorter. You may then ask your Bible study teacher, can we have a longer Bible study this time instead of a shortened one? So ask yourself, how do you feel about God's word? Do you feel bored when you come to study? Is your mind somewhere else? Or are you excited and committed to it? Let's look at a verse, Hebrews 6.1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So these people were supposed to grow. They were to leave behind the elemental things and they were to grow in their relationship with God. In verse 12 says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. These people were spiritually lazy. They were stuck at square one, stage one, as a spiritual baby. They didn't grow because they were spiritually sluggish, sloth-like, lazy, complacent. They didn't want to study. They didn't want to uh, exert themselves mentally. They just were content to drink milk. And so they never learned to eat food, to chew food. There's a problem. If a person is stuck as a baby and always drinks milk their whole life, that's very weird, right? They aren't growing. They aren't learning. It's the same truth spiritually. I once saw a story of a man who is over 30 who still acted like a baby. He slept in a crib and he drank milk and, and it was just a weird, weird thing. And it's like this, there's something clearly very, very much the matter with this. And so if when a believer is not interested in reading God's word or growing, that is also a big problem. Now let's go back. We saw that for a quarter of the day, they read from the book of the law. And then another quarter of the day, they made confession and they worshipped. What principle does that teach us? Well, Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God says that his word does not return empty. When his word goes out, it accomplishes the purpose for which he desires it. When the person studies and reads God's word, then it changes their attitude, their heart, their mind. So God's word will change you. You will not be the same. God's word is powerful and the Holy Spirit can use it to convict your heart of sin and to stir your heart to worship the God we learn about in his word. So when we study God's word, it's like a mirror. It shows us who we are and then it's also a lens that we can see who God is. Is And then when we see who he is and we see who we are, we realize how far short we fall. And we think, what's the solution? We need to repent. We need to come back to God. So what we see from the Jews here is they didn't just have a rapid fire. Oh God, I'm sorry. We've done a lot of wrong. Now let's move on with our life. 
Sometimes someone has done something wrong, and you confront them, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Why do you keep talking about that? You aren't you supposed to forgive, right?" And they just want to move on. It might not be a very genuine apology, but here they are genuine. They're not just saying a quick sorry, and they're moving on. So when you see God's righteousness, His holiness, His power, His love, His grace, His mercy, His compassion, you would then want to worship this great God, and you want to confess your sins because it's your sins which are keeping you from coming to this great God. So we should all be the kinds of people who spontaneously worship God after reading His Word. When we do study it, we see God's character, then we just Praise Him because of who He is. So, as we study God's Word, we should always be looking for what is God like, who is He, and then as we see His character revealed, we want to praise Him. After all, that's the chief end of man: is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So, this is uh, verse one through four. Uh, verse five: This group of people. I won't pronounce their names again right now. Say, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. God is an everlasting God, and therefore our praise for Him should also continue. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. All right. So the following from verse six to the end of the chapter, there's it's. Almost thirty verses is a prayer, a prayer of praise, a prayer of remembrance, remembering the things that God has done in their history, and it's also primarily a prayer of confession. They see the good that God has done for them in history, then they see that they haven't been undeserving of God's goodness. They've fallen short of His standard, and they then confess. To him, so we will not look at it in extreme detail, but I'll just pop through uh, and mention a few things as I read through it and as we go. So let me start from verse six. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. So you are the Lord, you alone. That is. Key to the Old Testament is that there is only one God. In Deuteronomy chapter six, it says that there is only one God. That is a key tenet of the Jewish faith. There is only one God, and then it says the host of heaven worships you. The host of heaven includes. All of the angels, even the angels, are giving God worship. If you look at Isaiah six, you can see the cherubim and the seraphim. They're in heaven, and they're all the time saying, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty." Verse seven: You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. So God chose their ancestor, Abram. He is the one who initiated that. God is the one who chooses us. He chose Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. So God was good to 
Abraham and God made a covenant. A covenant is like a contract. It's a deal. God is saying, I will do this, this, and this for you, and you should do this, this, and this. In this case with Abraham, I will bless you, I'll multiply your descendants, and I will give you this land. Your job simply is to obey my instructions. And of course, throughout the Old Testament, we see that God kept his end of the deal, but that the people could not keep their end of the deal because sin kept them from obeying God as they should. Moving forward, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. So all of these things, they are remembering what God has done in their past. And that word remember is actually very important in the Bible it's mentioned about 231 times. Now, many times this is about God remembering his people and his covenant, but many times it's also that people are to remember God and remember the things that he's done. And so in this passage, we see they're remembering the things that God has done for them in their past. And that's a big part of confession to realize God's been gracious to me. God has been merciful to me. God has done so many good things for me, and yet still I've gone away from him. So part of confession is saying, God, this is who you are, and this is who I am. And there's a big gap between the two, and therefore we need to confess. And so that's what they're doing. They're remembering the goodness of God, and then they're going to remember their own shortcomings. So this is a, a thing that we should do when we are contemplating our spiritual condition, is to review all of God's goodness in our past and not forget it and not take it for granted. Verse 11, you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. You cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. Okay, so God did many miracles on their behalf to save them out of Egypt. This is what they are remembering of what God has done for them. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. So God miraculously saved them and then God gives them a law. He reveals the truth to them so that they can know what is right and what is wrong, what they're supposed to do with their life. This is critical. God gave his word to the Jews and they were to keep it and they were to tell other people about it. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven and for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So this is talking about the manna, and it's talking about the water, all of which God supernaturally provided for them in the wilderness. So God had taken such good care, care of them. Verse 16, but, often an important word, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. 
Okay, so here's getting into the confession part. This is our part. Our national sin has been not obeying you. That was the Israelites' biggest national sin. Verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. So God told them, go into the land. And actually, if you look in the book of Joshua, they said, no, we're not going into the land. And it is, sorry, the book of Deuteronomy. It is dangerous. We're going to die. The people are too many and they're too big. So God said, go in. And they said, no, we won't. So God said, okay, you have to stay in the wilderness for 40 years and you will die there. And then they said, well, in that case, we want to go into the land. And now God says, no, don't go into the land. And they did anyway, and they lost. So the first time God says, don't go in, they disobey and say, sorry, the first time God says, go in, they disobey and won't go in. The second time God says, don't go in, and they disobey and go in. And from that, you see the heart of people is disobedience. And so that's what it says, verse 17, they refused to obey. Not only did they refused to obey, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They remembered, oh, Egypt was so great, and we had food to eat. I mean, the grass is always greener on the other side. They would rather go back to slavery than go into the place that God had prepared to give them. It doesn't make any sense. And sin often doesn't. And then here again, the word but. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. So even though they sinned, you were faithful. That's really the story of the Old Testament, isn't it? God's faithfulness, man's unfaithfulness. They sinned. God showed grace and forgave. Verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Another miracle, even after they disobeyed, and they were disciplined by having to stay in the wilderness 40 years. But actually the discipline wasn't that strict. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. God could have executed them all immediately, right after they refused to obey and did not go into the land. But instead, God said, you will die, but you can still live up to 40 years more. So that was very gracious. God gave them more time. Within that 40 years, they still had the opportunity to repent of their sins, to confess, and to truly follow him so that their soul could be saved. So sin in this world means consequences in this world. And yet, even though God is just and he may bring discipline because of his love, we still see that he gives times often and he gives grace. He doesn't guarantee to always do that, but he often gives time and gives grace and encourages people to repent. And then he even took care of them. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. Miraculously sustained even the, the atoms and the molecules that were holding the fabric of their shoes and their clothing together, God sustained these things so that they did not wear out. He took care of them in the wilderness. Now verse 22, you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted 
to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Uh, Og was a giant who was very, very tall, and God gave them victory over this uh, king and his people. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, just as he promised to Abraham that he would. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. So basically this is a zoom through the Old Testament uh, as far as it concerns the Israelites from the time of Abraham to the time of the Egyptian captivity to the time that God saved them. They came out of the land, were supposed to go into the promised land and didn't and then were uh, basically yeah, wandering the wilderness for 40 years and then back into the promised land and then God gave them victory and then they established themselves there. So it's reviewing Israel's history from the perspective that God is good. So that's what it says right here. Your great goodness. That is the summary of the first part of this prayer. God is very, very good and he's always been good to us. He's always been good to our ancestors. He's always kept his promises. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. All right, here's point number two. First point, God is very, very good. Second point, we weren't, okay? We were disobedient and we were rebellious and we even killed your prophets. Okay, this is the people's sin. So this is part of their national day of confession, their national prayer of confession. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Okay, so this basically goes through the book of the Judges and other places in the Old Testament like that. That is that God disciplined them in order to bring them back to himself. That's the purpose of discipline. God disciplines because he loves us and he wants to bring us back into a right relationship with him. And he wants us to remember that sin is serious and we should stop doing it. And so he saved them from the hand of their enemies. But, again the word but, verse 28, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. So, that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Okay, so this is the story of the Old Testament. God's goodness and people's sin and disobedience. They would not obey him even though they saw all of the many, many good things. 
got it done for them. They still turned their shoulder to him, turned their head, didn't want any part of him, and would not obey. And so that's what the Old Testament is telling us, that people have a problem. Look, even this chosen nation, this holy nation chosen by God, he entrusted his word to them, he gave them the prophets, even they sinned again and again and again. We do the same thing. So the point of the Old Testament is actually we need help. That is, of course, where Jesus comes in. He came to help us and to deliver us from these sins. Verse 30, Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Okay, same points. God, you're great. You're gracious. You're kind. You didn't abandon us. We totally deserved it over and over and over again. We deserved it. And yes, you did discipline us for a short time because of your love, but you never abandoned us. You never forsook us and you never uh, went back on the promise that you gave to us. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. So now it comes into the petition part of the prayer. Notice the hardship that we've faced, God. See how we are struggling over here. Verse 33. Yet you've been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Again, this could summarize the whole prayer. You have dealt faithfully, we've acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And we'll look a little bit more about this, this covenant in writing uh, in the next chapter. We'll see a list of all the people who signed this covenant. So this is a great chapter of confession. What is confession? Confessing is realizing the goodness of God. Confessing is being straightforward and humble to admit our own shortcomings. No excuses, no shifting blame, no assigning responsibility to others, no minimizing it, but to say, look, you were, you told us the truth, you gave us your law, your standard, and we didn't do it. No excuses. A lot of times when we are confronted with sin today, we tend to blame others. We make excuses. We justify it. We minimize it. They didn't do any of those things. They took responsibility for themselves. And they also realized that all the difficulties they faced in their history were a result of their sin. So rather than a person who is an employee and is late, 
repeatedly and the boss warns them again and again they're late and finally they're fired and then the employee blames the boss and says wow it's such an unfair and unjust boss and and he's not a very nice guy and all of these things like wait a minute you were fired because you were late repeatedly shouldn't you take responsibility and so a lot of times people face consequences for their sin and they didn't realize that these consequences were because of their decision or their sin. Instead, they blamed others for the consequences and never realized it was their sin and therefore never confessed their sin and therefore were never restored to God. So we need to take responsibility ourselves and know and call sin sin and realize that it has consequences in this world. But God is good. God is gracious. If we turn to him, he is always ready to forgive us. And the Bible says that he would take our sins as far as the east is from the west. That is an unmeasurable distance because you will never, ever reach it. So the point of this chapter is God's word changes our heart and changes our life. Let us study it. Let's hunger for it. And then as we hunger for God's word and it comes into our heart, then he will convict us of, of our sin. The Holy Spirit will work in us and then we can confess those sins and our lives and our hearts can be transformed and we can be restored to the Lord because his word is living and it is active. Uh, I know that this was a very long chapter today, uh, but I believe that the points inside are very helpful and a great reminder to us to love God's word and to hate our sin. I look forward to seeing you next time. May God bless. To see our entire library of over 800 Bible studies, please visit our website at www.studyandobey.com.